Good Sunday morning. This is the Arts Section. I'm your host, Gary Zydek. Welcome to WDCB's Arts and Culture Magazine. Every week we spotlight creative people, events, and ideas in the Chicago area arts community while also fostering broader discussions on music, film, theater, and other creative endeavors. Support for the Arts Section comes from the League of Chicago Theaters. On today's program, I'll talk to the author of an intriguing new book that dives into the history of one of the world's premier media organizations, the BBC. The dueling critics Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel will join me for a summer theater preview. They'll share what plays and musicals they're looking forward to seeing. And later I'll visit Northwestern's Art Museum for an up-close look at an exhibit titled Site of Struggle. That's all coming up. Thanks for making time for Arts and Culture this morning. Queen Elizabeth's Platinum Jubilee is culminating today. The United Kingdom has celebrated the Queen's 70 years on the throne with a four-day holiday filled with pomp and circumstance. Elizabeth II was only 25 when she became the UK's monarch in 1952. A lot has changed over the past seven decades. One constant during the Queen's reign has been the presence of a trusted institution. BBC Radio London. Update. The British Broadcasting Company is actually older than Queen Elizabeth. The BBC is celebrating its own milestone anniversary this year as it turns 100. An estimated few thousand listeners tuned in on November 14, 1922 to hear This is the British Broadcasting Company 2LO. Stand by for one minute, please. Those were the first words heard over the BBC's airwaves. Today, the British Broadcasting Company is considered the largest broadcaster in the world, providing news and programming to people all over the globe. And while it has an international presence, the BBC's connection to its home country is unlike anything in the United States. The company was established by a royal charter with a mission to act in the public interest serving all audiences with the provision of impartial, high-quality, and distinctive services which inform, educate, and entertain. The new book, The BBC, A Century On Air, provides a thoughtful and entertaining look at the history of the media organization. It comes from author David Hendy, a retired academic who used to teach at the University of Sussex and now lives in Lewis, England. I recently caught up with Hendy over the phone for a wide-ranging conversation about his new book, in the current state of the BBC. Obviously, the, the BBC's centennial is a, is a milestone occasion. When did you start thinking about writing a, a book about the BBC's long and distinguished history? I suppose, strictly speaking, it was about eight years ago, in 2014. That's when I approached the BBC with the idea of a, a single-volume history of the BBC. And the idea was that there have already been histories of the BBC. So there's a distinguished historian, Asa Briggs, who's written five monumental volumes of BBC history, a total of over 4,000 pages, and someone else who's written a sixth volume of the official history of the BBC. And I suppose I, I didn't really want to jest condense all that because I thought you know condensing nearly 5,000 pages of official history would be breathless and there's just so much to squeeze in I mean if you think about the number of programs the BBC has broadcast over the last hundred years it's somewhere between 10 and 20 million we don't know quite how many tens of thousands of people have, have worked for it and of course generations of of people not just in Britain but around the world have kind of spent their childhood and adult lives listening to it watching its programs and so on so it's 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 a huge vista and really what I wanted to do was to do something slightly different yes to tell the story about a hundred years through the key events but but to really give the program makers perspective, I, I had many years ago been a program maker at the BBC before I became an academic historian. And, and to me, it's the program makers 
that make broadcasting what it is. So I suppose my ambition was just to try and tell that hundred years in a slightly different way, going sort of deep inside the machine, if you like, and, and, and telling a more human story. Because those those broadcasters, the people who started the BBC and the people who kept it going are fascinating people in themselves. Uh, they're, they're human, they're flesh and blood, they've got ideas, they've got ideals, and they're, they're fallible as well, and that's what makes them so fascinating. Indeed. Even going into it with that idea and being familiar with just how gigantic uh, the BBC is and knowing what's come before as far as uh, documentation, was it still a challenge to get a handle of the scope once you started getting into it and putting the book together? Yes. I mean, it's <laughs> writing about the BBC, studying the BBC is both a privilege and a nightmare. I think that's the best way to describe it. The written archives, for instance, of the BBC are, are a treasure trove. They're, they're vast because the BBC is a, it's an organization which has been stuffed full of creative, articulate people, but it's also got a slightly sort of civil service government kind of mentality, which means it, it minutes everything and records everything in kind of extraordinary detail. So what you've got is is lots and lots of documentation, a hundred years worth of documentation, and that captures everything from the kind of the daily minutiae of program making to grand policy discussions about about the BBC and its place in British life or its relationship with the government and so on. So, And that is both fascinating and a challenge. How do you link the story of the BBC, which links it to big events in the world, the world war, uh, a, a, a general strike, a change of government? How do you link that and the BBC's role in reflecting that and reporting that to the public with the kind of steady flow of normal programs, programs that we, we like and enjoy and are meaningful to us as regular citizens. You have to try and reflect both, but you can't reflect everything. So you, you have to be selective. And in the end, you're trying to tell that big story by zooming in on particular people and particular locations and particular moments. And I suppose it's a bit like, you know, following Aristotle's advice here. You need some sort of unity of time and place. You can't spread yourself too thinly on such a vast canvas or else it becomes too abstract. So, so that was really what was going on in my mind. But what I really wanted to do, I suppose, the, the driving idea was that I wanted to show the BBC-ness of the BBC, if you like. <laughs> I couldn't tell the story of every single department or every single programme. But what I wanted to try and do was to say, well, what is it about this, the British Broadcasting Corporation, that makes it different to just another regular broadcaster, if you like, both in Britain and globally. It's fascinating to read about the, the dawn of something that's uh, so much a part of our daily lives now. Back in the, the 20s, radio broadcasts were this new frontier. Uh, and so you write in one of the early chapters, you know, news really wasn't a, a focus of the BBC. What was programming like those first couple of years? In the first few years, it was it was fairly ad hoc and sometimes chaotic. John Reith, who was the sort of, if you like, the founding father of the BBC, the first general manager of the BBC and, and brought a, a sort of vision to it, said that when he started the BBC in 1922, there were, as he put it, no sealed orders to open. In other words, broadcasting was pretty new. Um, no one really knew how to do it. Yes, there were radio stations in the United States, right? And there had been for a couple of years. There were about 350 radio stations operating in the United States by the time the BBC started. So there was a, there was a model of how to do it. But the, the, the Brits, being the Brits, wanted to be different in some way. And they were a bit anxious about the commercial model, if you like, and the competition and what they called chaos in the ether. So they wanted a national coordinated response. But as to what was on air, that was a blank canvas. And the, the, the small number of people who started the BBC basically had to kind of make things up. They, would, uh, they would, didn't have very much news because the newspapers wouldn't let them. They had 
sketches from plays. They had readings from from books. They had entertaining kind of comedy sections and 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 music. People playing the piano in the studio and 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 so on. They eventually, as soon as possible, they would have live link-ups with with theatres and music halls. And music was an important part of uh, those early years. And and that's something important to remember because. Very often the popular image of the BBC is that it was a kind of a rather stiff, formal organisation full of uh, dreary talks and, and uh, classical music and so on. Actually, that, there was very little news. Yes, there were talks and they covered a whole range of things. You might have one one day which is about how to tin sardines or a foggy day in London and then the next day there might be a talk about serious economic policy. It was quite a jumble. That's probably the best way to say those first few years of programming was like. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the arts section. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm talking with David Hendy, the author of The BBC, A Century on Air. So we're going to shift gears a little bit. So I've been an admirer of the BBC for a long time. I have cousins who live in london and as a teenager they would send me recordings off of the the radio of music programs on bbc radio one and then when i started in in radio i would work these early shifts in one of the stations i worked at broadcast the bbc news at 4 a.m here in chicago and so i would listen to that every morning and then several years ago i made my first trip to, to england and i was captivated by the bbc television programming um, so it's always been uh, an area of interest for me, uh, for my audience of uh, American listeners. There's a real separation between television and radio here. And then when it comes to television, we have our big three legacy networks. Maybe you can provide some perspective on how uh, the BBC's role in England differs from how we do things in America. The key thing to say about the BBC and its sort of place within British life is that um, of course, it's not it's not a kind of public service broadcaster that is there to plug the gaps or to provide kinds of programs that the commercial stations provide. The BBC was there first, and it was there right from the beginning, conceived of as a national broadcaster. And and the idea was that if it was not reliant on advertising or or commercial ratings, and if it was not uh, a state broadcaster, subject perhaps to political interference, then it would be in a privileged position to ensure that the widest range of programmes would be available to as many people as possible. That was the, the founding ethos, if you like, of the BBC. Quite a democratic one. Um, I mean, in one sense, it was elite because it was saying its task was to bring the best that has been thought and said and done in the world to as many people as possible. And that second part of the equation is the democratic thing. It's not it's not about ring fencing culture or information to those who can afford to subscribe, for instance. It's basically universal access to as many people as possible. It's about the idea that in a modern democracy, everyone needed access on the same terms to, to culture and information and ideas and so on. So that that notion is really what underpins the BBC ever since and why it is, if you like, central to, to national life. Now, of course, as the century has progressed, there are more and more competitors, not just new commercial channels and satellite broadcasting and, and platforms like Netflix and Disney Plus and, and so on. Of course, in that sense, the BBC has to compete as one of many. But it's still within Britain, for instance, uh, a, an institution where over 90% of the population use it every week. It's there, it's present in terms of radio, television, schools broadcasting, educational broadcasting. It it supports orchestras, it runs live festivals. Uh, It's got a very big internet presence. So BBC Online is just about the most used uh, website in, in Britain. And of course, it's got a vast world service that broadcasts around the world to approaching now 500 million listeners. So 
it doesn't feel marginal, if you like, to British life. It's something where almost everyone has some experience of using the BBC. And because of that, of course, it's, it becomes a lightning rod as well for all sorts of national arguments and, and anxieties about, you know, the culture war or about politics or whatever. They're reflected on the BBC and they're fought through on the BBC. So uh, even though it enjoys this national status, it also, in a sense, suffers from this national status by being a bit of a whipping boy for, for all sorts of political debates. So growing uh, partisan and political divides here in the, the U.S. have led to deep divisions in how people consume media. And I, I get the sense from reading your book and from other things that for a long time the BBC stayed above the fray in terms of U.K. politics. I've been reading about efforts to, uh, to change the way the organization is funded, uh, the way the BBC is funded, uh, led by the Conservative Party. Thoughts on how the BBC has navigated the current political landscape? Someone once said that the BBC has crisis in its bones, and it's true. Right from 1922, it's kind of had run-ins with politicians, politicians from both the main, main parties. But there is a fundamental difference, I think, with what happened under Labour governments and what hun- happens under Conservative governments. Labour governments tend to be disappointed with the BBC because it doesn't do enough in, in their minds to compensate for the, the right-wing bias of most newspapers in Britain. The Conservatives have tended to have a kind of deeper ideological distrust of the BBC. There's something suspiciously collectivist or welfareist about it, this sort of do-gooding kind of idea. And so I think that, you know, there has been that enduring suspicion. And the danger for the BBC, the vulnerability of the BBC, is that even though it is a public corporation, it does not belong to the government or the state, it is ours, it's the people's, Um, the government has a whip hand, which is that periodically, every 10 years or so, it gets to set the level of the license fee. So the license fee is the main source of income for the BBC. And it's one of those examples of where, because the whole, or pretty well the whole population, pitches in and contributes towards it, then you get a lot for less outlay, if you like. So the BBC is a kind of well-resourced organisation that can do a lot and make programmes of high quality and so on. And that's, that's part of what sustained it, that kind of that treasure chest of resource. But if you want to weaken the BBC or you have an issue with the BBC and you're in power, the government can freeze the licence fee or even uh, reduce the licence fee or even threaten to end it altogether and move to a new model like subscription and so on. That is what the current Conservative government are, are contemplating. They've already frozen it. They're threatening to end the licence fee. They're looking at other models like subscription. Now, subscription seems sensible in many ways. Other media organisations use it. But if the BBC's mission is to provide the best and the fullest range of programmes for as many people as possible, for everyone, ideally, then subscription really undermines that whole ethos. So the current moment is really genuinely dangerous We have a Conservative government um, led by Boris Johnson that um, is not afraid to try and weaken rival sources of authority and expertise, to undermine the judiciary, to challenge universities, to criticise the church, and of course, to attack and weaken the BBC. So we're in a dangerous moment for the BBC, and politics does matter. Any sense, uh, from your perspective, of, of public opinion in regards to how the UK public is feeling about uh, changing the funding model? I think probably the funding model is something that people don't necessarily think about particularly. What they have is a sort of taken for grantedness of the BBC, if you like. Most people, if pushed, will say, well, you know, I don't really mind. I mean, I watch Netflix most of the time now and so on. But actually, they they undercount, they sort of don't count the full range of the BBC that they use. And there was an interesting experiment that was done uh, in 2015, where a group of people who said that they didn't really want to pay the licence fee were invited 
as part of an experiment to go without all BBC services uh, for a period of several weeks and to get a discount on their licence fee as a result of that. And about two-thirds of those um, on the experiment gave up and said uh, after a week or so that uh, they got it wrong. <laughs> uh, they hadn't realised how much the BBC was part of their lives. They hadn't really appreciated that when they pay their TV licence it also funds radio and they'd have to go without that. They hadn't appreciated that they couldn't use BBC Online or BBC iPlayer uh, and, and so on. And, and so I think that's a kind of indication, if you like, of both the problem and, and you know, an opportunity for the BBC. People value the BBC, but they don't realise every day how much they value the BBC. There's a sort of taken for grantedness. So it's true, there's no public clamour uh, to, to weaken the BBC. So public opinion, I think, is, is probably on the side of the BBC, but it needs to stand up <laughs> at some point in the near future and actually fight for the BBC, not just be on its side. I should mention that you write about that in the, the final chapter, some of those ideas we were just discussing. And then in the, the next to last chapter, The Expanding Labyrinth, you write about the BBC's entrance into the, the digital age with BBC Online and the iPlayer. Technology has changed the way all of us consume content. How has the BBC done in terms of, of meeting the needs of audiences today? I mean, I would say the BBC's done pretty well. Its challenge is resources. But if its licence free is frozen, as the government has done, then that, that debilitates the BBC's ability to kind of compete and invest in new technology and new platforms and so on. But, but if it could be given the resources, and in the past when it has been given the resources, it's done pretty well. And uh, you mentioned that, that chapter where I talk about the history of BBC Online and iPlayer and so on. That, that's an important part of BBC history because it shows that this idea of a, of a sort of big, lumbering, old-fashioned organisation wedded to 20th century technology, radio and television, is just not the case. I mean, the BBC invested early into establishing online and introduced the British public to the idea of, of streaming video and, 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 and so on. It popularised internet use and it did that by taking a risk and investing a lot of intellectual resource and capital in developing new platforms and new websites and so on. And even now, for instance, the people who, who run Radio 1, which is the, the, the main national pop music station that the BBC runs, um, they also are present on YouTube, for instance, and have 7 million subscribers, making it one of, if not the, biggest radio station on YouTube in the world. So, so the BBC is, is capable of competing in this kind of new multimedia streaming international world, provided it's got uh, got the resources to be able to kind of spend spend on it. It's got the kind of intellectual capital, if you like. It's got the experience. It's got the research and development departments, the engineering know-how, and so on. Um, but but you know it. it it needs to be allowed to develop and compete rather than being kind of restrained, especially by a government that really wants it to be smaller, not larger. You mentioned, you, you talked earlier about the, the founding ethos and mentioned John Reith, uh, and I think it was him that, that promoted this idea of giving audiences not necessarily what they wanted, but what they needed. Uh, does that philosophy still exist at the BBC? I think it's probably the case that the BBC tries to give people what they want and what they might need, in other words, to do both. Because, I mean, there is something kind of, as it, as it were, slightly patronising, isn't there? The idea of a group of people who run a broadcasting organisation claiming to know what's good for people. On the other hand, the way in which kind of Reef and his generation thought about it was as a kind of a gift, if you like, which is, look, there is a world of culture that a lot of people have not had access to, 
how many people in 1922 had been able to go to the opera or a classical music concert or to actually witness and listen to senior politicians talk uh, about politics. Broadcasting, in their view, was about opening the gate to all of that to as many people as possible. And it wasn't really about defining what from a narrow range people had, but about guaranteeing that everyone had access to the widest possible range. That was the idea. And and that kind of difference, that tension between giving people what and giving people what they need was worked through by the BBC on the basis that the market assumes that that supply will meet demand, that if people want something, it will be supplied. And the BBC has always suggested that actually it's not quite like that in reality. It's not quite like that because sometimes the market just <laughs> jumps to over-providing more and more of the same thing. And that people might not know what they want if it doesn't yet exist. So the BBC had this idea that actually instead of demand prompting supply, that supply could change demand. That if they, if they broadcast the good stuff, if you like, people would come to like it and appreciate it because it might be unfamiliar and, and, and unsettling at first, but gradually you got used to it and so on. And I mean, this was a kind of noble vision, perhaps an unrealistic vision. But those people who started the BBC in the 1920s believed in their heart, genuinely, that over time everyone would come to love Beethoven. And this might well be decades even a hundred years or so down the line. But that's what they thought broadcasting could do. Now, I think the BBC these days is more realistic about that, but it does try and run what I would call a mixed economy. It includes programmes of, of simple delight and pleasure that people just love and can enjoy. And it also includes in the schedule programmes that are challenging and perhaps unsettling uh, and not necessarily what people want, but they might grow to like. And actually, you know, some of the big hits in the BBC's history are unexpected and weren't asked for. Uh, one of the BBC's comedy series, The Office, which I know has been remade in America. No one asked for The Office, but it was a kind of a, a wonderful creative idea that took off. The current hit series, Strictly Come Dancing, which I think has been reversioned around the world as things like Dancing with the Stars and so on. That was an unexpected, unanticipated success. No one at the start of the 21st century thought a dancing program based on ballroom dancing would be a hit. And yet it was. So I think that's one of the, the interesting and uh, most exciting things about broadcasting and broadcasting history is you actually don't ever really know what's going to succeed and what's going to fail. And I should mention, uh, we just scratched the, the surface. Uh, there's really intriguing parts about the BBC's role during World War II uh, and then uh, how it evolved and the, the current Queen Elizabeth uh, and her coronation. There's, there's so much here. We couldn't get into it all. But David, I appreciate you coming on. And I, I really, it was a pleasure to talk with you. Great. I enjoyed it very much myself. Thank you very much for having me. That was David Hendy. He's the author of the new book, The BBC, A Century on Air. It's available everywhere books are sold. And a quick reminder, if you listen to the art section every week here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM, make sure to visit the website over at theartsection.org. You can find archived episodes and individual segments available to listen to on demand anytime you want. And there's also contact information if you want to reach out to me, leave me a note, go to theartsection.org. <laughs> And you are listening to the Arts Section. I'm Gary Zydek. I'm joined now remotely by the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. Good morning. Good, Good morning, morning, Gary. Good morning, and we, we, we want to wish everyone an almost summer. 
Yeah. Or a happy Father's Day, whichever comes first. Well, the calendar says it's June, which means it's unofficially summer, even though our recent weather still feels more spring-like. Weather aside, this summer feels different from the past two in terms of people being more comfortable leaving the house. COVID-related deaths are at their lowest point since the beginning of the pandemic. That's not to say COVID is gone. We're still seeing positive cases, and last week the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention elevated the local threat level to high. Still, the performing arts realm appears to be as close to pre-pandemic conditions as it's been in two years. If you are interested in returning to see live theater, there will be more options this summer, and today Carrie and Jonathan are going to talk about the productions they're looking forward to most. Jonathan, let's start with you. Theater Wit wraps up its current season, which it called Go Big or Stay Home, with a Chicago (laughs) premiere of uh, the play Hurricane Diane. Hurricane Diane, if you ever had a Go Big title, that's probably it. And it's my first pick as uh, something that looks good, at least on paper, uh, for a summertime show. This is a comedy by Pulitzer Prize finalist Madeline George, which seems to be inspired by the Bacchae, an ancient (laughs) Greek play by Euripides, which is anything but a comedy. In this version, the god Dionysus comes to contemporary America in the form of a female uh, meta-gardener. And uh, who inspires four suburban New Jersey housewives to join him slash her in restoring the earth to its natural state. Now, this is really an intriguing take on climate issues. It won a 2019 Obie Award for its (laughs) off-Broadway production in New York. And this is its Midwest premiere at Theater Wit on Belmont Avenue in the Wrigleyville neighborhood in Chicago. It runs June 27th to July 31st. The theater with artistic director, Jeremy Wexler, is the director, and he has an excellent track record with offbeat but pertinent contemporary works, such as Hurricane Diane, which it looks like offers a message within a very entertaining packet. So that's my first pick. I'll be eager to see Hurricane Diane June 27th to July 31st at Theater Wit. Yeah, and, and Theater Wit has produced a couple of Madeline George's plays in the past. I think in uh, 2015 they did The Curious Case of the Watson Intelligence. In 2013 they produced Seven Homeless Mammoths Wander New England. So they definitely have an affinity for her work. I'm quite looking forward to this one as well. And next we'll turn to, to Carrie for your first pick. And this is a, a piece of musical theater that was supposed to premiere back in, in 2020, I believe. A production called Skates. What makes more sense in summer than roller skating, right? If you want to capture the glory days, and Jonathan, I know, is a former uh, roller disco king, so this is obviously something <laughs> that's of great interest to you. Um, we have a new musical in a newly remodeled Studebaker Theater in the landmark Fine Arts Building called Skates. Now, Skates was actually supposed to open at the Royal George. I believe they were in previews or getting ready to be in previews in uh, spring of 2020 or March of 2020 when, well, we all know what happened. Um, And since then, the Royal George itself has closed down completely. But the musical has returned. It it will be in the newly remodeled Studebaker, which older listeners may remember at one time did offer live touring shows, then was the Fine Arts Movie Theater. It has since been getting a great new uh, facelift, and this is the first major show to be produced there since then. I don't know much about it, but it's described as Grease meets Hairspray with a dash of Xanadu, and it features American Idol vets Diana DeGarmo and Ace Young. The premise is a rock star in 1994 finds herself sent back to the roller rink days of her youth in 1977. It's got quite a pedigree, uh, local as well. It's directed by longtime Chicago favorite Brenda Didier, uh, Mercury Theater Chicago Artistic Director Christopher Chase Carter, who is just an ace choreographer, is doing the honors there. And it's running all summer through August 28th. So, it's uh, you know, if you're looking for something that's fun, physical, and sounds a little on the fizzy side, then skates may, in fact, be the, the way to roll. <laughs> and, and, you know, I think, though the, the plot line, a 1990s... Um, was it Disco Queen sent back to her her roller skating uh, childhood or adolescence? It sounds like a perfect setup for a jukebox musical of recycled pop hits, but I am fairly fairly certain that this is an original musical score. I believe 
I yeah. believe that you are correct on that. Yes, yes. Yeah. And uh, the one of the creators is actually from Chicago. You know, if you remember Rainbow Rink, and people have a very fond memory yes. of that that North Side, Lawrence, that North Side Lawrence institution. You know, I, I think yeah. that this could very much be the, the nostalgia hit of the summer for, for people. And, you know, if you're too young to remember it, you can just, you know, enjoy, uh, uh, you know, a new musical in a classic building right downtown. Uh, and take time to wander around the fine arts building. I actually got a little tour a couple weeks ago of the new remodeled Studebaker, that, which is going to be the home of uh, uh, NPR's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, opening later this summer. There's a wonderful bookstore there. It just truly is one of the gems of Chicago culture. So. And you can ride in a, an elevator that's manually operated. Yes, <laughs> which yeah. is about as much of a thrill ride as I'm willing to do these days. <laughs> <laughs> now we'll go back to, to Jonathan and uh, Chicago Shakespeare's presenting It Came From Outer Space. And didn't you both review um, a virtual or a radio play that was kind of a precursor to this? Yes. Yes, we did. They had a little uh, curtain raiser uh, digital that we saw, I think, last year or, or yeah. uh, you know, sometime in the last couple of years of whatever this has been. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, you know, you know, skates may take it back to the 1970s, but this is a musical that takes it back to the 1950s. Uh, it came from outer space. Now, you know, the original 1950s flying saucer film, written by the great Ray Bradbury, by the way, <laughs> it still can be seen on TV occasionally, but this is a brand new musical version of it, a world premiere commissioned by Chicago Shakespeare Theater as their family-friendly summertime show at Navy Pier. Performances begin June 22nd and continue through July 24th. Uh, you know, it came from outer space, had a serious underlying message in the 1950s, as so many sci-fi films of that era did. But this world premiere is uh, billed as a musical comedy, so I think we can expect a slightly goofier kind of good time with this musical version of It Came From Outer Space. Yeah, what I most remember from the digital version was Ife Butler kind of uh, as one of the witnesses to this alien invasion, as you were, and uh, kind of telling us the story using hand puppets. So I sure hope that that's still in the, in the live version. We will see what kind of exciting tricks Chicago Shakes has up its sci-fi sleeve uh, uh, from June 22nd to July 24th. And next up, this is, the title's kind of a tongue twister, A Fine Feathered Murder, A Miss Marbled Mystery. Carrie? Yes, I, yeah, that's that. I didn't think about that, but it is indeed a tongue twister. Well, you know, the other thing that says summer is camp. And if you're talking camp in Chicago theater, you're talking Hell in a Handbag. Uh, the company's latest parody by founder artistic director David Serta is a, uh, a take on the uh, Agatha Christie Miss Marple mysteries. Um, in Fine Feathered Murder, Miss Jane Marbled, played by handbag heavy hitter uh, extraordinaire Ed Jones, is an unassuming spinster with a knack for solving crimes, which comes in handy because, you know, there just seem to be dead people all around whenever she shows up, you know, not unlike Jessica Fletcher. Uh, surprisingly, <laughs> she still gets invited to visit friends, and in this particular show, she's at the Fine Feathered Ball at the Fowler Estate. A murder is announced. Miss Marbled, Miss Marbled has to figure out who's done it. Uh, the show runs June 16th to July 31st at the Chopin Theater. And I think it's a safe bet that we'll probably feature Helena Handbag's usual array of drag performances, double and triple entendres, and pop cultural references. Their shows are always entertaining, uh, always slightly risque, perhaps not for five-year-olds. <laughs> If you're just tuning in, you're listening to the Arts Section on WDCB. My name's Gary Zydek. I'm here with the dueling critics, Carrie Reed and Jonathan Abarbanel. We're previewing some of the things the critics are looking forward to seeing this summer at the theater. Coming up uh, next, Jonathan, uh, you're looking forward to Pearl's Rollin' with the Blues, a night with Felicia P. Fields. I certainly am, as <laughs> Curly Joe used to say. This is another world premiere, this time a musical review at Writers Theater in Glencoe. It's put together by star, singer, and force of nature, Felicia P. Fields, uh, in partnership with esteemed director Ron O.J. Parsons. And it's a tribute to Bessie Smith, to Big Mama Thornton, to Howlin' Wolf, and to other great 
names in the blues, most of whom had some connection to Chicago uh, somewhere along the line of their careers. This show promises the blues and nothing but sung and played by an outstanding company headed by Felicia P. Fields herself. Uh, Pearl's Rolling with the Blues runs at Writers Theater in Glencoe June 23rd through July 24th. It's on my don't miss list. Yeah, and that I think the writers' uh, setup is so intimate that it'll be, you know be particularly nice to be able to see these talents in that in that setting. And then, Carrie, your final pick is a production called Campaigns Inc. Yes, you know, getting it's still still a comedy, but maybe getting a little darker. It's a little later in the summer and closer to the midterm. Gulp. <laughs> uh, Timeline Theater is premiering company member Will Allen's play called Campaign Inc. It's based on the true story of Leona Baxter and Clem Whitaker. They were a husband and wife team who formed the first U.S. Uh, the first political consulting firm in U.S. history. Uh, they were sometimes credited. Uh, if you will, for the creation of the idea of fake news. They uh, came to fame for preventing socialist author Upton Sinclair, who wrote The Jungle, from being elected governor of California in 1934. Uh, They really did uh, kind of create a lot of the direct mail and media buy strategies that have come to define our current uh, political, you know, dirt fights. Uh, So you may may find that uh, cause for alarm. You may find that... uh, cause for, well, let's see what the roots of all of this are. (laughs) But at any rate, it is a world premiere, and it's running August 3rd to September 18th. Now, the the past couple of shows that uh, Timeline has done have been at Theater Wit. They are returning for for one more season at their longtime home uh, on Wellington Avenue at the church. Uh, That will be their last season there before they move into their beautiful new, you know, currently under construction home in Uptown. But you know, if you're if you're looking to gird your loins a bit for the upcoming campaign season, although I'm sure it won't, there won't be any mud thrown or dirt, <laughs> you know, tossed around. I'm sure it'll just be a completely civil affair. Uh, then perhaps Campaigns Inc. will uh, will help you scratch that itch. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing you because now, at long last, I know who to blame. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I think Baxter and Whitaker are long gone, but their their legacy, such as it is, continues undoubtedly to live yeah. on. We probably ought to mention that a major pre-Broadway show will be coming to Chicago this summer, pre-Broadway tryout mm-hmm. of The Devil Wears Prada, <laughs> the delayed-for-two-years-musical version of the very successful motion picture with a score with music by Sir Elton John. So a lot of people will be interested in the Double Wears Prada. Our picks were strictly locally based shows. This sure. is a this is a you know, New York bound Broadway show at the Big Nederlander Theater downtown, formerly yeah. the Oriental. And those who are really Broadway aficionados and want to see it before Broadway does, the Double Wears Prada begins performances July nineteenth at the Nederlander yeah. and they continue through August twenty first. And there is a Chicago connection, because this is uh, directed by the former artistic director of Steppenwolf, Anna B. Shapiro. It is the first time she has helmed a musical. She's definitely had other shows on Broadway, including Tracy Letts' The Minutes, which I believe is still running. Uh, but she's never directed a big-budget musical before, so this is quite, a, quite an exciting development for her career as well. Indeed it is, and, and she and her husband and kids were my, my across-the-alley neighbors <laughs> for, a, a two, for about two years. They have since moved. And uh, just before the shutdown, just before the shutdown, uh, March 2020, this when it did, and this show had been announced for the summer, for July of 2020, and they had they ended up being postponed two years. I remember I <laughs> you know, ran into Anno, you know, as we were both uh, coming out of our garages, and I said, "You head off to New York soon to begin rehearsals." She said, "No, the company's here. We've already started rehearsals," <laughs> and uh, it was not to be, but now it is. And they've done some, I talked to Anna for an earlier feature about this, and they've done some things like Andy is played by a black woman, so they've, you know, tried to update the story a little bit to reflect some more, you know, uh, current sensibilities and, uh, you know, to make it not quite exactly, you know, the uh, the film <laughs> on stage. So we, I, we'll, we'll have to see what other... What other twists they work in, but we and we will have to see what Sir Elton wears on opening. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think he'll be here? I oh, that would be exciting. <laughs> well, 
He was here for the opening night of Aida. Oh, which was his uh, you know pre-Broadway show of some several years ago sure. at, at the uh, at the Cadillac Palace, and he was in the audience for it. Well, there you go, star power. Yeah. <laughs> So that's just a, a small sampling of, of things to come. Of course, you can go to chicagoplays.com uh, to see a, a full listing of what's coming up. I'll post uh, the Dueling Critics recommendations on the theartsection.org. Before we wrap up, uh, one piece of theater news we wanted to touch on. The, the House Theater of Chicago has announced its winding down operations yeah. this summer after 20 years. Carrie, any, I know the artistic director stepped away in 2020. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think this is really unfortunate news. They did have a uh, total new leadership came in, Lenise Antoine Shelley, um, and they she only was able to get two shows done before the board pulled the plug. You know, there was uh, Jonathan and I have talked frequently over the last couple of years about the more diverse leadership and BIPOC leaders who have been brought in. You know, House Theater started with most graduates from mostly Southern Methodist University, I believe, and they were primarily white led organization, as a lot of Chicago ensembles tend to be when they start out, um, with, a, you know, college friends starting their company. House really made a name for themselves with, you know, sort of physical theater, mystic recre- recreations and deconstructions and expansions of sort of uh, mystic storytelling. But I think like a lot of companies, uh, in the aftermath of the George Floyd um, protests and having that time to think and, and recalibrate during the shutdown, they decided to go with a more diverse leadership model. And they brought in Lenise Antoine Shelley, who is in fact, uh, uh, I think adopted from Haiti, uh, raised in California. Um, their very last show was, uh, the tragedy of King Christophe, uh, which is a Haitian set play. Um, and that has, that will be their swan song. Yeah. I, I, for me, I feel like it's unfortunate to bring in new leadership and not, fully commit to letting their vision, you know, take root and grow. Um, and I, and I find it a little disheartening, frankly, I don't know what your take on that would be. Now the only production that I've seen, I, I did not see King Christoph. I saw, um, Shelley's take on the snow queen, um, earlier this year and I didn't love everything in it, but I thought there were some really interesting, um, you know, uh, directions that she was going with. And I I, I just, yeah, I don't know. I I find it unfortunate. I find it sad. I've enjoyed a lot of house shows, and I hope it wasn't a case of bringing on somebody and then expecting them to keep doing the work the way it has been done, because it doesn't make sense to bring in new leadership if you're not, you know, willing to to commit to what they are hoping to achieve. We don't know what the -the behind-the-scenes circumstances are. Uh, You know, would... Would uh, the new leadership have succeeded if things hadn't been shut down for 18 or 19 months, if, uh, you know, there had been a smooth transition? We don't know. What we can say is that the company originally was a tight-knit ensemble of uh, mostly students who had studied together at Southern Methodist University under a charismatic and energetic uh, founder artistic director, Nathan Allen. And they were able to uh, really galvanize a young audience. I remember going to their early shows, and, you know, there hardly was anyone over 35 in their audience. Uh-huh. And it was a real hoot and holler and exciting time in theater. And eventually the company did so well, multiple award winning company, that their audience expanded into. You know, old fogies carry like you and me, <laughs> uh, uh, and and continued its successful uh, 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 operations. So it's difficult to say whether with right. their first show or their first two shows, they have lost so much of their audience that they can't sustain the model anymore. Uh, until someone writes a definitive history, we won't yeah. know. What there we is do a, know is we, we, were lo- we are really losing what had become right. rapidly. Uh, you know, they went from zero to 60 in seven seconds mm-hmm. and uh, became an iconic representative I, company of Chicago theater. Yeah, Board President Renee Duba, this is just from the press release that came out earlier this week. Our strategic assessment looking to the future made it clear that we did not have the financial momentum or audience slash donor support to continue beyond this fiscal year. Um, so, you know, that, that is, 
you know, there, there have, we have lost other companies. Um, some that we've lost have come back, like Mercury Theater. House is definitely, you know, a loss. Um, they were, they were, as I think you said, Jonathan, iconic. They definitely, you know, found a, a, a niche that was not necessarily um, really being explored. In uh, their, their motto for many years, their unofficial motto was "Story Save Us," and um, I think they did energize a huge audience base with their approach to sort of, as I said, the sort of epic storytelling. And they, you know, they had. I remember seeing the Hammer trilogy uh, all the way through, which is a three-part play. <laughs> you know, one one whole day I spent there and. Tracy Letts did the voice of a dragon. So, you know, that's... <laughs> you've got a Pulitzer Prize and Tony Winter doing the voice of a dragon for you. <laughs> well, they were... House, the House Theater of Chicago, or the House, as they... That's mm-hmm. the shorthand, as they, they preferred, uh, you know, were dynamic and highly theatrical, strong storytellers. Mm-hmm. And everyone said they, they followed in the footsteps of the great organic theater company, uh, under Stuart Gordon of right. the 1970s and 1980s. And it's no surprise because their teacher at Southern Methodist University, Dr. Cecil O'Neill, was an original company member of the Organic Theater Company. And real, real old-timers who remember the original production <laughs> of Warp, the three-part sci-fi trilogy right. at the old Body Politic Theater on Lincoln Avenue, they would have seen Cecil O'Neill played the, the hero, Lord Cumulus, in that <laughs> production. So there was that pedigree, and it is it is a, really yeah. a shame to see that continuity yeah. uh, come to an end. And, you know, I agree. I mean, I think that... Um they they were getting audiences who weren't necessarily you know quote unquote regular theater going audiences yeah. and you know we scratch our heads so often about how do we get people to the theater it's like well do stories that they're interested in you know by tap- tapping into these kinds of you know uh, comic book aesthetic although they weren't doing like actual superhero adaptations but these you know whether it's Tolkien esque sort of tales whatever it might be it's like this is what people really love, clearly. <laughs> so find a way to translate all of that into the excitement of live theater. And they did it just, they, they did it, and, you know, not everything they did was great because 20 years on, you're going to take some experimental twists that maybe yes. didn't quite work yes. as well as others. But there was never anything less than bold, joyous commitment in the shows that I saw. We'll have to leave it there, kind of a, a downer note, but look forward to, to seeing you two next week. Carrie, Jonathan, thanks so much. Oh, thank you, Gary. You're welcome. It was good to talk to you guys. I'm Gary Zydek. This is the art section. An exhibition in Evanston is taking a closer look at the deep roots of racism in America and the role art has played in supporting anti-black violence. Titled A Side of Struggle, the exhibit features over 60 works of art in a wide range of media. Carrie James Marshall, Howardina Pindell, and Theanster Gates are among the artists featured in the exhibit. A Side of Struggle is being presented by Northwestern University's Block Museum of Art. It's on display through July 10th, and then it heads to the Museum of Fine Arts in Montgomery, Alabama for three months. The starting point for what turned into the exhibition, A Side of Struggle, was actually my encounter with specific works of art that engage with the issue of anti-black violence. This is Janet Dees. She's the curator of modern and contemporary art at the Black Museum and the curator of A Side of Struggle. And this is over many years, particularly two that ended up in the exhibition. One is the video entitled Palimpsest by the artist and poet Carl and Karen Pope, and that was created in 1998-99, and I encountered it in 2000, shortly after it was made. Um, And another work is uh, a similar piece by the African-American artist Pat Ward-Williams, entitled Accused Blowtorch Padlock, which she created in the late 1980s. That is a work that is um, kind of critiquing both the existence of and the circulation of lynching photography. So those two works served as sort of a a spark. They got you thinking about a more comprehensive exhibit that would explore the ways art was involved in anti-black violence efforts? Yes, I think with with every exhibition that I, I develop, it really starts with encounters with work of art and to see what artists kind of artists have engaged with. 
And then, so those were just kind of two works that were foundational, but then over the years, I was encountering more and more work that was grappling with this issue. Um, and I felt, you know, as we entered into, you know, the post like 2013 era, there was a lot of work that was focusing on contemporary issues and contemporary art that were dealing with the most like immediate um, in incidents of violence. But I thought it was important to um, develop a project that would look at the, the history so we could understand that the things that we are grappling with today have a long history and that there's a longer um, historical context. I recently visited the Black Museum of Art to get an up-close look at a site of struggle. I sat down with Dees to learn more about her hopes for the exhibit and the five-year journey to bring her initial idea to life. First, I did a lot of um, archival research and research um, into uh, museum collections as well as talking with a number of artists. And then I had a series of like formal consultations as well as informal conversations with a number of people. And the research for this project took two kind of routes. Um, one was about the content of the exhibition, so the what that should be in it. Um, but the other was about um, the best practices for presenting um, what is you know challenging and difficult topic in the space of an art museum and how to really create a structure that would support um, visitor experience and visitor care. As far as that second route you were just talking about in terms of presenting a, a challenging and difficult topic, an exhibit tackling these themes has the potential to be overwhelming for a visitor uh, and there are some graphic pieces in it but it sounds like there was this effort to approach the subject matter from a variety of different angles the way that the exhibition is conceived it's focusing on different kinds of artistic strategies um, to engage with that so um, and it's organized into three different sections. So yes, one of those sections um, does look at the ways in which artists have um, engaged more graphic depictions to protest violence. But the other two sections look at um, different strategies that artists have used to avoid literal representations of violence. So there's part of that sense of not wanting to be too overwhelming is built into um, artistic, the strategies that artists have used themselves. But also choices like presenting a moderate number of works relative to the amount of works that are available. So as, as you kind of rightly um, point out, as not to be um, unnecessarily overwhelming. And then also creating a number of uh, support spaces and resources. So there are resting places throughout the exhibition, as well as a separate reflection room um, for kind of quiet con um, contemplation and decompression. Um, as well as a visitor's guide that offers a number of tools, such as a discussion guide, um, information about um, resources and organizations and units both on campus, but also in Evanston and Chicago that are working to um, help to eradicate racial violence in our present. And then in terms of, of that other route of the curation process, the what? Did you have a, a set of principles that guided your decisions as far as what made it into the exhibit? Yeah, so in terms of the what, there were a number of factors that I um, considered, um, and these were developed in you know conversation with other scholars who were subject matter specialists. So first was thinking about the time frame of uh, works um, that were would be on view. So the exhibition is um, really engaged with the period between, like, say, the 1890s, which like is mark marking a rise in anti-lynching activism, and then ending with 2013 and the founding of Black Lives Matter. So, really wanting it to be kind of a prehistory or pre-art history of our present moment. And so, in choosing the artworks, the final artworks for the exhibition, I wanted to make sure that that range was represented, that there was a balance between uh, material from, say, the 30s and the 40s um, versus, like, the 60s, 70s, or today. Additionally, I wanted to be kind of mindful to also showcase different kinds of artistic strategies um, and that there was a balance between the different strategies. And so what I mean by that is when you hear that, um, you know, an exhibition is engaging with a topic of anti-black violence, you might think that it was, it's going to be all like, graphic in nature, right? But there's some artworks, um, like 
Paul Rucker, for example, is one of the artists whose work is featured, who creates um, memorials for historical incidents of racial violence, but used cr by creating wooden sculptures that mimic the form of musical instruments, right? So looking at kind of abstract, abstract ways to, um, to recognize these, these histories. If you're just tuning in, this is the art section. My name is Gary Zydek. I'm talking with Block Museum of Art curator Janet Dees about the institution's new exhibit, A Site of Struggle. There are three sections um, to the exhibition, um, but they're, they're non-hierarchical, so you can kind of move through the exhibition um, as, you, as you choose as a visitor. So the first section is entitled Written on the Body. And this is a section that um, contains artworks in which the body is present, um, but not as um, not being depicted as um, you know in the midst of active victimization. Um, and it's a category in which the artists are using the presentation of the body to grapple with the kind of long-term and particularly psychological impacts of racial violence. So it's engaging with things like um, mourning, the mourning process, what happens in the wake of violence, um, but also issues around what it means to be a black person and, and kind of move through the world with um, the knowledge of how you might be perceived or what might befall you um, because of how you're perceived. The second section is entitled Abstraction and Affect. And this is a section, again, where it's looking at works that are using various conceptual strategies or different degrees of abstraction to avoid literal representations of violence. So what does that mean? It means <laughs> things like the work by Paul Rucker that I spoke about earlier, work by um, Theaster Gates, who is also a local um, Chicago um, artist, where, for example, he's creating um, like abstract, pa basically pa painting, but using uh, decommissioned fire hoses as the material. Mm -hmm. And for him, this harkens back to the use of fire hoses as a um, instrument to attack basically protesters, and particularly during the civil rights movement, right? So that sometimes the material is resonant, even if the image that you're looking at um, isn't resonant, and that these works still have the ability to elicit strong emotion and communicate to us. And then the final section is entitled A Red Record, and this section takes its title from an 1895 pamphlet that was also written and, and published here in Chicago. Um, which was entitled A Red Record, The Tabulated Statistics and, Ale and Alleged Causes of Lynching. And this was um, produced by Ida B. Wells, who was a journalist and activist based on three years of her research around the country um, investigating um, lynching in a way to kind of bring this to broader public awareness. And in this section are um, works that are using um, more kind of graphic depictions to protest uh, violence. Dee has a few hopes for what she wants visitors to take away from a site of struggle. One is that people will, will be able to engage with this artwork to get a deep understanding of the, the sort of deep roots and long history of racial violence in our, our country and to then take that to, to know that whatever remedies or actions that we propose in, in the present have to be as deep and complex that we can't, you know, superficial kind of solutions won't do. Also, you know, the majority of the artists in the exhibition are African-American, but um, intentionally I included the work of artists from different backgrounds. And I think that's important for people to see that there also are legacies of solidarity around protesting this kind of violence. Um, so, for example, um, there's work, you know, from the 1930s by Japanese-American artist Asama Noguchi, um, white artists like Reginald Marsh and George Bellows, um, who lent their works to support efforts by black activists like the NAACP. So to really to, to think about that as also a continuity. And also for those whose uh, lived experiences may intersect in various ways um, with the work on view, just to feel that there's a space that's recognizing that experience and, and holding it up for others to see. Janet, I really appreciate you making time to, to talk with me. Thank you, Gary. I appreciate you taking the time to come see this exhibition and to have a conversation with me about it. That's Janet Dees. She's the curator of the Black Museum of Art's current exhibit, A Site of Struggle. 
It's on display at the Evanston-based museum through July 10th. You can find more information at blockmuseum.northwestern.edu. And that's going to wrap up this edition of the Arts Section. But remember, you can always find more arts and culture online by visiting the program's website at theartssection.org. You can find past episodes and individual features available to listen to on demand anytime you want, plus pictures and links that go along with all the features you hear on the program. My name is Gary Zydek. I hope you'll join me again next Sunday morning at 8 a.m. right here on 90.9 and 90.7 FM for another edition of the Arts Section. Until then, I hope you have a great week. Thanks for listening.